First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to the book of Acts today, the eighth chapter. Uh, If you have been with us uh, over the course of the past few months, you know that we've been uh, going verse by verse through a different book of the New Testament, the book of Philippians, and uh, we will be right back in our study of Philippians next Sunday morning, but we're taking a break today uh, because uh, this afternoon uh, we have one of our biggest uh, fellowships of the year, an opportunity to celebrate those uh, who are following the Lord in baptism. Uh, It does look like today it is the Lord's will for that celebration to take place here uh, as opposed to at the beach uh, due not only to the uh, forecast of rain but also due to a surf advisory. Uh, We we know that baptism is a picture of death but we don't want people to literally die uh, at the baptism today and so uh, I'll share more about that later. Uh, But we already have uh, more than 20 folks who have signed up uh, to be baptized uh, today. And I'm sure some of them will choose to be baptized here today. Some may choose to wait uh, at a different time when we're able to do that at the beach. But perhaps uh, you are here today and God is calling you to take that step in your own life, to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And I want to give you a chance to make that commitment to do that uh, even before this service is over. To help us uh, kind of get started thinking about baptism, I want to show you this quick video. This is a couple years old now, and you might have already seen this, but, but I will say this once you've seen this, uh, you won't forget it. But let's check this baptism out together. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Awesome. I love the fact that at the end, the pastor admitted that he actually dared him to do it. So in my opinion, that's on him at, at that point. Um, but, but, you know, here's the thing about uh, that uh, young man. Uh, we're we're going to talk today about the fact that in the church, generally speaking, there seems to be a, a reluctance and even an indifference 
uh, about following through in baptism, but whatever else he might have been, that kid was not reluctant, right? <laughs> he, he was ready to, to take the plunge. And, and maybe in a slightly more reverent way, uh, the Lord is calling you uh, to take that plunge as well. And we're going to start out by reading and talking about a story in Acts chapter 8 uh, of the baptism of an Ethiopian man that happened in a very unlikely place in the middle of the desert as he was on his way home from a trip to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, we'll start reading in verse 26 of this chapter. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said to him, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scriptures which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this story of faith. In this Ethiopian man, and the story of his baptism that proclaims the good news that saved him and that can save us. Father, we pray now that you would take your word, and Lord, you would speak to our hearts. That Father, we might trust in your son Jesus, that we might be obedient to proclaim our faith in your son Jesus through the waters of baptism. Well, would your Holy Spirit speak to each of our hearts now? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've titled the message today, Why I Believe in Believer's Baptism. And I want to do my best in, in a short period of time that we have together to answer uh, that question. But where do we go uh, to answer that question? Uh, where do we go to answer any question that has to do with the things of God, right? We go to the Word of God. And we see what he has told us. It really isn't what I think that matters or even what you think that matters. It's what God has already said uh, that matters about this and every other area. His answer is really the only one uh, that we should be concerned about. Now, in a, in a nutshell, 
Believer's baptism is the belief that biblically, baptism is only for believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, It's not for those who haven't believed. Uh, It's not uh, for those who are too young to have possibly believed. It is for those who have already believed and who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, the reason why I believe in believer's baptism is because I believe it's what the Bible plainly and clearly teaches. And the story that we just read in Acts chapter 8 is a great example of believer's baptism in the Bible lived out right in front of us. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through this story together. And then I want to look at a couple of truths that we can see not only in this story, but in the rest of uh, the scripture as well. Now, this story opens in verse 26 with a man named Philip being told by an angel to go south along a road in the middle of the desert. Now, the context of this story in Acts chapter 8, of course, is the entire book of Acts, where the gospel message, this good news about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus is being proclaimed, and it's moving out from Jerusalem, and it's moving out across all the face of the earth. God was using the apostles to spread this message, men like Peter and Paul and others, but God was using other folks as well. Philip was one of the seven men mentioned two chapters earlier in Acts chapter 6 as one of the first seven uh, we would consider the first deacons of the church. And Philip was an evangelizing deacon. Philip just wanted to tell people about Jesus. And in the previous chapter, or excuse me, at the beginning of this chapter, Acts chapter 8, Philip is telling the Samaritans about Jesus. And really a revival is breaking out in Samaria. God is doing amazing things. But now Philip is being told to leave that revival and to go out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. I wonder if that's ever happened in your life where you've ever been involved in something and you feel like you're right where you're supposed to be. And, and, and the Spirit of God is moving in incredible ways. And then, for no reason that you understand, God moves you to someplace else. And you really don't understand that. But notice how verse 27 begins. It says, So he arose and went. And that should be how we all respond to the call of God. No matter what God asks us to do or how little sense it might make uh, to us, when the Lord says go, we should say yes. And we should go, just as Philip did. When Philip gets out there in the middle of the desert, he sees a very prominent man who is coming down the road in a chariot. Look at the description of this man, verse 27. Behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. This man was an African man from Ethiopia, which corresponds to the modern-day country of Sudan. And he was a high-ranking official in Queen Candace's cabinet, you might say. He would be like our Secretary of the Treasury. And apparently this uh, man was a God-fearer. He had come to believe that Yahweh, the God of Israel was the true God of heaven and earth. And we know that because it says that he he was just leaving Jerusalem and that he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. He had gone to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. And as we read on, we know that he also uh, bought something while 
he was there. Now, last October, I had the chance to take a pilgrimage, actually my second pilgrimage, to the land of Israel to go to Jerusalem. And I bought some souvenirs while I was there as well. Uh, I found this one uh, gift shop there in downtown Jerusalem where you could actually find a a screen print of your favorite college team, and they would print it on a T-shirt. And so I found a screen print of, of Florida State and it had the, actually the letters of Florida State written in Hebrew and printed that on a little t-shirt for one of my boys. Thought it was a great gift, except for, I mean, no, it wasn't two minutes after I walked out of the store, I could see that some of the letters were already falling off this shirt. And suffice it to say, it wasn't the wisest purchase that I ever made, but this Ethiopian man made a much wiser purchase uh, because on his way out of Jerusalem, he stopped off at the gift shop and he bought the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And of course, God's hand is, is all over this story. It's not by accident that he uh, picked up a copy of Isaiah. It wasn't by accident that he happened to be reading Isaiah 53 at this particular moment when uh, the Lord brings Philip right alongside his chariot. And so Philip hears this man reading aloud, and that was customary in those days to, to read aloud. And the man was reading again from Isaiah 53. And so in verse 30, Philip says, Do you understand what you are reading? And in verse 31, the man says, How can I unless someone guides me. He basically says, will you come up here and explain the Bible to me? And I know as as we are uh, wanting to go out and to tell people about Jesus, sometimes we're praying for open doors. Sometimes it's difficult to recognize an open door when you see it. But when somebody says, can you please come and explain the Bible to me? That's an open door. Right? We don't need any other information than that. The Lord is, is working in that person's heart. And so Philip says, uh, yeah, I can probably do that. And so he gets up in the chariot and verses 32 and 33 tell us the part of Isaiah 53 that was being read. And this is one of the clearest passages in the Old Testament about the suffering of Christ on the cross. And if you're a believer, you cannot read this text without seeing and thinking about the cross of Christ. But this man was not a believer yet. And so he was confused. And he asked Philip, is Isaiah the prophet talking about himself when he says this? Or is he talking about somebody else? And then verse 35 tells us what Philip did. Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. We don't have uh, the words of that conversation recorded, but uh, you can uh, know for certain that, uh, that Philip started by saying something like Isaiah was talking about someone else and answered his question. And the someone else that he was talking about is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And we know that Philip went on to share the good news about Jesus with this Ethiopian man, that the Son of God had come, that he had taken on human flesh, that he was born as a man, that he lived a perfect life that you and I have not been able to live, that he went to a cross, that he died for us on the cross, that he paid for our sins, and on the third day that he rose again from the dead. And as this man from Ethiopia was listening to Philip share about Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God began to work in his life. And began to open up his heart to the gospel. And the reason that uh, we know that is because of what this man asked. 
as they continued to ride down the road, in verse 36, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? So at this point in the conversation, again, the sovereign hand of God is over all of this. But as their chariot is bouncing down that desert road, uh, they come to a place where there is a pool of water uh, beside this road. And the man asks if he can be baptized. Apparently, Philip had shared that those who put their faith and their trust in Christ follow as a sign of that commitment in believers' baptism. And we don't know precisely what uh, Philip said in response uh, to that, uh, because in the earliest and best Greek manuscripts, verse 37 is not found there. Depending on uh, the translation of the scriptures that you are reading, that verse may be absent altogether. Uh, it may be found uh, down in a little footnote at the bottom uh, of your page. Uh, it is included here in the New King James Version. It says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now again, this was not in the original Greek manuscripts, but it does represent a very early tradition. And it represents something that would even be used at early baptismal services where uh, the person being baptized would be asked if he believed in Jesus Christ and the person would respond with these words, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And even without this verse, of course, we already know that this man believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and that's why he asked if he could be baptized. And apparently Philip had heard enough because at this point the chariot stops and these two men get down out of the chariot and Philip baptizes him in the water. What a scene this must have been. Imagine that, right? Philip baptizing this Ethiopian man in the middle of the desert, the glory of the gospel on display. And then to make things even stranger, right, during this period of, uh, of the early church spreading like wildfire, God is working in miraculous ways. And, and so it says here in the text that after this baptism, right, after the Ethiopian man is brought up out of the water, Philip is snatched away, right, by the Holy Spirit and taken off someplace else to tell people about Christ, right? So imagine you're the Ethiopian man, right, and you come out of the water and you turn around and you say, Philip, that was awesome. Philip? Philip, right? And his friends are saying, man, he's gone, right? He, he disappeared, right? He, he is gone. The Spirit of the Lord has taken him someplace else. What a story this man had to go back to Queen Candace and to go back to Ethiopia and to share. And church history says that he did exactly that and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ on the continent of Africa. We don't know whether this Ethiopian eunuch brought a change of clothes or not, uh, but I don't think he cared too much if he had to ride all the way back to Ethiopia in wet clothes because he had met Jesus and he was forever changed. And as the text says in verse 39, he went on his way rejoicing. And that should be true of every child of God, right? We all have a reason to celebrate because of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. And as we'll see later, what he has done in our lives is pictured so beautifully in the waters of baptism. And so with this story from the Word of God in our hearts and in our minds, I want to share two main truths with you about believers' baptism that we can see not only in this particular story, but, but in the rest of the New Testament as well. And here, here's the first main truth. In the New Testament, 
those who get baptized always believe in Jesus first. You know, we could have gone to many other passages in the New Testament to talk about uh, baptism, but I chose this text in Acts chapter 8 as our primary text because it's uh, so beautifully pictures. It's such a clear example of believer's baptism. This Ethiopian man heard the good news about Jesus, he believed, and then he was baptized. And it is always in that order in Scripture. It is always belief in Jesus first and then baptism. To use the language of verse 36, nothing hinders us from being baptized if we believe. But we believe first and then we get baptized as an outward symbol of an inward change that has happened in our hearts. And again, that's the pattern that we see everywhere in the New Testament. It's what we find in Acts chapter 2. It's what we find in Acts chapter 8. It's what we find in Acts chapter 10 and right on through the rest of the New Testament as well. In fact, you will search in vain looking through the New Testament trying to find an example of someone who was baptized before they put their faith in Jesus. It's just not in here. And so what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that if if you're here today, and maybe this is your first time uh, here in uh, a church, or maybe it's not your first time in church, but, but, but it's your first time where God has just been speaking to your heart and dealing with you, maybe in these last few days or weeks or months, and you know that he's calling you, Uh, to surrender your life to Christ. And you're wondering, well, maybe I I need to get baptized. Well, this is what I would share with you, and this is what the Bible, I I believe, would share with you. The first thing you need to do is to be saved. The first thing you need to do is, is to do what this Ethiopian man did, to hear the good news of what Jesus Christ did for you, to hear about his death, hear about his burial, hear about his resurrection, and accept the risen Christ into your life first thing you need to be do is to be saved. When you say, well, what about baptism? Shouldn't I be baptized? Absolutely, you should. But that comes second. It's always belief first and then baptism. Now, now hear me. You can be saved this morning by the grace of God and baptized literally this afternoon. And in the story of this Ethiopian man, this is about what happened, right? In fact, it happened even quicker, right? He was saved in the chariot one minute, and a few minutes later, he gets down in the water, and he follows the Lord in baptism. And that can be your story as well, but we need to get those two things in the right order. Belief first, salvation first, and then baptism as a sign of that salvation Now, if you have been in the church for any length of time, especially if you have been a part of a different denomination in the past, you know, if you haven't always been a dyed-in-the-wool, casserole-eating, grape-juice-drinking Baptist, right, then, then you know that many other Christians do not believe that the only people who should get baptized are believers, Now, everybody believes that when it comes to adults, that that for an adult, we have to come to faith in Christ first and then get baptized. But in many other denominations, when it comes to infants, 
An exception is made to this normal ordering of belief first and baptism second. Many branches of Christendom, right, practice what is known as infant baptism. Maybe you've come out of one of those denominations and maybe you've wondered why we don't practice that here. And that's a very important question. And so I want to spend a couple of minutes answering that question this morning, why we don't practice that here. And, but before I, I get into that, I do just want to share a couple of things. First, I just want to be clear about this, that our disagreement with other Christians about this issue of baptism does not mean that whoever is right about this is saved and whoever is wrong about this is not saved. Right? Baptism is an important issue, but it is not a salvation issue. Practically speaking, what that means is while, while I do believe that our Presbyterian and Methodist and Lutheran brothers and sisters in Christ are wrong about this issue of infant baptism, I still do believe that they are our brothers and sisters in Christ and that we will be together with them for all eternity. Amen? And you know what? When we get to heaven, I'm sure the Lord Jesus will tell all of us about some things that we got wrong down here, right? He's probably going to take all the Methodists and have a meeting with them, right? And tell them all the things that they did wrong and get the Presbyterians together, have a meeting with them. He get the Baptists together and he'll have a meeting with us. Now, our meeting will be shorter than all the other meetings because we don't have much to say. <laughs> no. Of course, some kid. We have to learn to, to disagree with other Christians and talk about our disagreements and do so with love. Because we know that we believe in the same gospel, that we have been saved by the same Lord, and that we're a part of the same family, and that we will be forever. You know, within Christendom, broadly speaking, many different groups practice infant baptism, and, and some of these groups practice it for different reasons, right? Our, our Catholic friends practice infant baptism because starting with St. Augustine, that they believe that infant baptism on its own, without any faith on the part of the child, actually saves that infant and covers that infant from the stain of original sin. And the problem with that, just to kind of put it bluntly, is that there is no biblical evidence for that position. But most Protestants, on the other hand, do not argue uh, that uh, baptism saves the infant because as Protestants, we agree on the main thing, right? We agree on the gospel. We agree that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and that no work can be done on our part to aid in our salvation, right? There's nothing that we do, baptism included, that contributes to our salvation because salvation is not because of our work. Salvation is because of his work. Salvation is because of what Jesus Christ has already done. And, and so again, to be clear, most Protestants do not practice infant baptism because they believe that by doing that, that that infant child is saved. Most Protestants practice infant baptism because they believe that it is an appropriate symbol for an infant who is born into a believing family with believing parents, and they want to communicate that this child is a part of the covenant community of the church. And many great theologians, past and present, have taught this and believed this. Men like John Calvin and Martin Luther, modern-day teachers uh, that I respect so much, like the late R.C. Sproul, 
Timothy Keller, Sinclair Ferguson, many, many others uh, believe this and, and teach this. But the problem with infant baptism, and again, for the sake of time, I'm going to just have to put this very bluntly, very directly, is this. Infant baptism is not found anywhere in the Bible. And, and actually, none of those men that I just mentioned who believe in infant baptism really would deny that because it's really just a plain fact. They, they all know the Bible. They all know the Bible better than I do. And, and, and they would all agree that there is not one single command in any, anywhere in the Bible where we are commanded to baptize infants. And also, there is no clear example anywhere in the Bible where we see an infant being baptized. And really, all of those brothers that I just mentioned would agree with those statements. And so the arguments that are made uh, for infant baptism are arguments based on various interpretations and inference and analogy and logic. But in the end, we are left with a major teaching and a major practice in many churches that really does not have clear scriptural support. And as Protestants who trace our roots back to the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, we need to remember the rallying cry of the great reformers, right? It was sola scriptura, scripture alone. As John MacArthur would remind us, the cry of the Reformation was not tradition, 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 or the fathers, the fathers, the fathers, but it was scripture, scripture, scripture. It's not what we've always done that matters. It's what the Bible plainly teaches that matters. Now, the godly teachers that I mentioned earlier who believe in infant baptism, of course, uh, will, will make biblical arguments for its practice, and they believe in good conscience that what they are doing is in line with the Scriptures. And, and, but in my estimation, the arguments that they make are, are uncon unconvincing. We don't have long to, to spend here, but a few of the arguments for infant baptism are, first of all, the household baptism passages that show up in the book of Acts and a few other places in Scripture, uh, where it speaks about a household or, or a family uh, being baptized, and, and the assumption is made that perhaps there were infants uh, that were a part of those Households, and I guess it is uh, possible, but, but again, it does not say that there are infants in those households, and it would be a leap to assume that in the absence of any other evidence. In fact, what we find in those household baptism passages is the fact that those in these households, like the Philippian jailer's household in Acts chapter 16, heard the words, specifically says that they heard the word being proclaimed to them, and then they were baptized. And so what I believe you see in these household baptism scriptures uh, are, are not examples of infant baptism, but rather they are more examples of believers' baptism. Those who, those who hear the word are clearly old enough to hear it and respond to it and then follow in baptism. Another argument that's given is from 1 Corinthians 7, which we had more time to delve into this, but this is a passage about marriage. It's a passage about a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, and it, it speaks in this passage about how the believer should not divorce the unbeliever because in some sense the unbeliever and the children, it says, are, are sanctified, are holy in some way. Now we can debate about what it means when it says that the children are, are holy there, but we really don't have to because, again, this passage does not say a word about baptism. 
And even if it did talk about baptism, even if we wanted to say that uh, these children being holy means that they need to be baptized, to be logically consistent, we'd also have to say that that unbelieving husband or wife needs to be baptized. And of course, no one is saying that. And so I don't find that argument particularly convincing either. The most important argument that is made for infant baptism is an argument from the Old Testament. And, and what they say is that baptism in the New Testament is a replacement sign for circumcision in the Old Testament. Now, the argument for this view uh, and the response to that view uh, would be an entire sermon in itself. Uh, but maybe if I just share a little bit here, this will whet your appetite for those who'd like to study this more deeply. But uh, essentially, the argument given is that baptism is the sign of the new covenant, in the same way that circumcision was the sign of the Old Covenant. So in the same way that Jewish boys uh, were, were circumcised at eight days old, the argument is made that we should baptize our infants to symbolize that they are a part of the New Covenant people of God. The main objection that I would have with that, other than the fact that the Bible does not draw that connection between circumcision and baptism, at least not in that way, the main objection I would have is that there are a lot of differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And, and, and most importantly, the difference between those two is how you enter the covenant. Right? That we do not enter the New Covenant by birth. In fact, here, here is just a main truth that's just so simple, but I want us to hear this. No one is born into the church. We all have to be reborn into it. Right? Remember what Jesus taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we are not a part of the covenant people of God just because we happen to be born to believing parents. We aren't saved vicariously through our parents. While our parents play a huge role in discipling us and sharing Jesus with us, each of us, the Bible says, have to personally respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. And I believe what communicates that truth most clearly to our children is not baptizing them when they are so young that they could not possibly have believed in Jesus yet. I think what communicates that truth to our children most clearly is waiting until they show evidence of repentance and faith. And then that sign of baptism becomes a true sign of something that has already happened in their Hearts. Again, the first main truth is so simple and yet so important. In the New Testament, those who get baptized always believe in Jesus first. But the second main truth, and this may be the truth the Lord wants you to hear even more today. In the New Testament, those who believe in Jesus always get baptized. This is just the other side of that statement. The only one exception to that truth that I can think of in the Bible is a man who really did not have the opportunity to be baptized after he believed in Jesus. Yell out if you know who that was. Right, the thief on the cross. The Bible says that one of the two thieves uh, that was crucified next to Jesus believed in Jesus while hanging on the cross, right? And Jesus turned to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. He believed and he was saved and he is with the Lord, but he did not have a chance to be baptized. But other than that one man, you will not find anyone else in the Bible who believed in Jesus and then did not get baptized Afterwards, In fact, the Bible does not even have a category for someone who is an unbaptized 
believer. Because in the New Testament, when people believe in Jesus, they get baptized. And they declare themselves publicly to be followers of Jesus Christ. Again, we saw that in Acts chapter 8. The Ethiopian eunuch believes and then he is baptized. We see that from the very beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2. On the birthday of the church, when the Holy Spirit falls, when Peter preaches that sermon and 3,000 people are saved. Listen to these words. With many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Again, notice the order, right? They believed first and then they were baptized. But notice also that all 3,000 of these new Christians were also baptized. None of them said, eh, yeah, it's probably not a big deal, right? I probably got some other things that I could do tonight, right? I probably don't need to, need to, to do that, right? None of them said that. 3,000 people were saved and 3,000 people were baptized. And that is the pattern that we see throughout the pages of the New Testament as well. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that you have to be baptized in order to be saved? Well, no, it does not. Oh, there, there are some groups, the Church of Christ is one, who does teach that, who teaches that baptism is an essential part of salvation. And they will use a verse like Mark 16, 16. It says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And they'll look at that verse and they will say, you know, see, it, it, it says that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. So only those are baptized who will be, will be saved. But I would just respond to that by saying that it doesn't say that only those who will be baptized will be saved. The verse is simply referring to the normal pattern of things that we see in the pages of the New Testament. Normally, people who are saved are then baptized, but the verse really doesn't say anything about the person who is saved and is not baptized because, again, the, the New Testament just doesn't think in those terms. And really, there are only one or two other verses that can even be pressed to try to make an argument that baptism is essential for salvation. And over against that church, there are hundreds of passages that speak about salvation by grace through faith that don't say a word about baptism. And the most important argument against this view, this view is, again, the fact that the Bible so clearly teaches that we are not saved by works, by any work, including baptism. We are saved by the grace of God. So no, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. But here's the question I would ask. Why would a saved person not want to be baptized? I don't know how to put it more simply than that. Why would a person who has been redeemed by the Holy Spirit of God, whose life has been transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ, why would we not want to identify with Jesus through the waters of baptism? What could possibly hold us back from taking that step? And so while it's not required for salvation, it is important. It's not an optional add-on that we can take or leave. We have the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who was baptized himself in Matthew chapter 3. And then we have the clear command of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Matthew 28 who tells us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And the part right after where that banner leaves off is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? This is a command from our Lord to us. And so because of this command, we speak about baptism as the first step of obedience in 
the believer's life. And then besides that fact, besides the fact that we're commanded to do it, I want to just share very quickly a few reasons why we should be excited to do it. We should be excited to do it because of what it says about Jesus. Because when a person is baptized, it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Jesus' death and burial and his resurrection. It's a picture of what Jesus Christ has done to save our soul. We should also be excited about it because of what it says about us. Because it doesn't only speak about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, it speaks about the fact that the day you put your faith in Jesus, you were baptized into Jesus. You were immersed into Jesus, and now God sees you as united with Christ. Isn't that awesome, church? He sees us as dead and buried and raised again, filled with the risen Christ. And we should be excited to proclaim that picture. Romans 6.4 says that so clearly. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Our baptism is a picture of these gospel realities. And we should also be excited about our baptism because of what it says about the church. Because in our baptism... We are communicating that not only have we been baptized into Christ, but we have been baptized into the bride of Christ. We have been baptized into the people of God. The people of God here in this local church, but even more importantly than that, the people of God in the universal church, right? The the kingdom that he is building. And we will be a part of that family forever and ever. And then lastly, we should be excited because of what our baptism proclaims to the world. Right? That when we are baptized, we are proclaiming to the world that we have been redeemed by Christ. That our sins have already been washed away. That we are living for a different Lord. Our baptism says to the world that I am not ashamed of Christ. As Paul said in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. You know, we've seen these two truths today that first those who are baptized in the New Testament believe in Jesus first and second that those in the New Testament who believe in Jesus do get baptized and how do we respond to these two truths I know that many of you maybe even the majority of you in this room have already believed in Jesus and have already followed Jesus in baptism after your salvation. And so really the application for you is just to rejoice, right? To rejoice in the grace of God in your life that he saved you. To think back to that day of your baptism and to remember what that signifies. To remember what that says about you eternally. That you died with Christ, that you have raised with Christ, that you're going to live forever with Christ. And then also church, it, it calls us to rejoice in being able to watch today the power of God in the life of others. Whenever we as a believer are able to watch a baptism, it should just bring joy to our hearts because we're seeing that our God, our Savior, is on the move. And we're seeing other lives being transformed by his power. But you know, when we think about this idea of believers' baptism and the two truths that we looked at, there's really two distinct groups, two separate groups of folks in this room for whom the application is so clear. I'm going to ask that you go ahead and just stand with me at this time. Because what I want to ask is is that as I describe these two groups, I'm going to ask the pastors in in this service to go ahead and just make their way to the front. And I want to ask that as I describe these two groups, if you find yourself 
in either of these two groups, I want to ask that you would not wait for me to be done talking, (laughs) but that as soon as the Spirit of God speaks to your heart, you would just start walking. That you would just be obedient to whatever he says to you. You would come and speak with one of these pastors today and nail down where you stand with the Lord. That the first group are those who have been baptized but have never believed. Right? Maybe you were baptized as an infant. Maybe as a child. Maybe even as an adult. But, but sitting here today or standing here today, you, you've realized, you know what? Even though I've been baptized in the past, I don't think I've really ever fully given my life to Christ. I don't think I've really fully surrendered control of my life. I don't believe that I've really understood what he did for me at the cross. And I know that I've been baptized, but really that, that wasn't a true sign of what's happened because that hasn't happened in my heart. And so the call for you today is to say, you know what? I need, first of all, to do first things first. I need to get right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if that is you, don't wait for anybody else. You come right now. The the second group of folks that I think this message really speaks to are those who believe but have never been baptized. Maybe you know you're saved. Maybe you know that the Lord Jesus has changed your life, but for whatever reason, you've never been obedient before in this area of baptism. Or maybe you were baptized as as an infant, but you've never been baptized on, on this side of your salvation, right? On the right side of your salvation as a believer that knows what you are declaring to the world, that you want to follow Jesus Christ. And you know that right now, today, you need to make that commitment. You can be baptized this afternoon in this room. Or you can come today and say, I want to sign up for another date. But you can leave this room knowing that you have made that commitment. And I'm going to be obedient to the Lord in this area. I'm not going to let that disobedience last any longer. He's told me to be baptized, and I want to be baptized because I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray right now for anyone in this room that needs to respond to your word that needs to respond to to your call, your love on their life, Father, to to come to know you. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room right now that needs to follow you in baptism, that nothing would hold them back, Lord, from making that step of faith. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) 